Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's um, let's gavel this to order, Mecca. Um, I'm uh, I'm glad this is our third time chatting. Is that right? Yes, it is. And um, you know, uh, I you've been on my mind a lot. I think uh, since the first time. Well, actually, we've met. We've spoken four times. The first time was on the Soka Passion Live, and. Right. Um, I, I, I'm happy to talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. And, and, um, we started off our, our relationship started under sort of very stress, stressful terms in terms of, I, I think it was the George Floyd murder, correct? Yeah. It was very tense. Yes. Yeah. And, um, I've thought a lot about that first interaction that you and I had and then just the, su- the subsequent podcasts. And, and I'm, I've sort of been lamenting a little bit about, I don't know how to say this other than I, I, I don't know what the solution is to any of our problems. I, I feel like everybody has the solution, but like nobody actually knows what to do. Like, let's just do this now and let's do this. And then like, yeah. We'll and we see, that. yeah. And online, I feel and me personally, I think I'm, I'm overly sensitive to the way conversations happen online and I see people say stuff and then I'm like, I don't know. I've spoken I don't think everybody thinks that way. And I think you're oversimplifying the issue. And I'm just kind of curious in this conversation, if there's anything we talk about that you're like, you know what? I don't think I'm in a headspace to talk about this stuff, given your personal history. Um, But I just, I'm kind of at a loss and I just want to talk and, and sort of get your, your take on some of this stuff and sort of where your head's been, because um, I just, I've been trying to identify, I've been trying to like understand what it's like to lose someone that way. Um, and I can't, I've tried so hard Mecca to understand. And I just, I don't think I ever really will. And I'm just kind of curious, where's your head been at since, since the very first time we spoke and then seeing all the, seeing the conviction recently of Derek Chauvin, which is a good thing, but also doesn't mean that things are fixed. You know, like I'm kind of curious for you, what's your thought? Where, where's your head been? And then we'll, if we want to talk about snakes or anything else or, or DJing for the rest of the time, please, we can, but this is what I've been thinking a lot about. And one of the reasons I like talking to you. Yeah, um, I'm glad for the conviction. It's justice, it's fairness. You know, we we when we've seen so many times where people get black people get killed by the police on video, and the world watches, and then they, the the cops still never see, you know, any kind of punishment, and the family never sees justice. So I'm glad for the conviction. That is a start, but the sentencing is a different story. So let's see what happens with that, but. I am happy for that they at least found him guilty because we, we we really don't get that. Um, let's go back to you know my my situation. The brother, the, the cops that killed my brother, they got death duty. So to see them actually be convicted, it's like okay, well maybe we're getting maybe maybe it's a start. Maybe we're getting somewhere, you know. Um, the sentencing, I, I I remember telling you like I, I don't want to watch the George Floyd. Um, case. I don't want to see it. I already know how it's going to end. And um, it surprised me because I wasn't expecting them to find him guilty. Mm. Um, it pretty much never happened. So I remember telling you, like, uh, I don't want to see it. I can't watch it. I can't watch it. But then when I found out the outcome, I was like, surprised. Mm. Um, it's just, and then, but in the same day, uh, the 16 year old girl was killed. Um, by the, the cops, which is not really the same. It's okay. I forgot her name. The sixteen-year-old Makai Bryant. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So when you watch the footage, when I watch the footage, 
I understand why the cop shot. Mm. He jumps out the car and he sees a girl just going to stab another girl with a knife, but he just reacts. I understand that. Mm-hmm. The problem is that when it comes to black people and cops, it's always shoot to kill, mm-hmm. never to disable. So while I understand why he did what he did, and I can't blame him for him doing what he did, um, is why did she have to be killed? Shoot her, okay, shoot her, fine, but don't kill her. Um, but he reacted. And it's a heat of the moment. It was just a knee-jerk reaction. It was a heat of the moment. And, and I get it, but I've seen so many different footages of cops de-escalating white people with knives. Um, one guy, I, one footage I saw, this this white guy, this teenage guy, stabbed the cop in the, cop in the neck and then took off running. And the cop put his gun down and picked up the taser. Like he spit it out. And the, the, guy, the, the teenage boy, he's left, like he got arrested unheard. So it's not that the, that they, the, the police don't know how to de-escalate. It's just when it comes to black people, they don't want to. And that's the problem. That cop shot that girl four, four was like four times? In, uh, in Columbus, I think it was four times. Yeah, I think he, he could have just hit her once. You know, I'm not saying he shouldn't have shot her. I'm saying he shouldn't have killed her. Because mm-hmm. he's, you know, you see this girl about to step out. What are you going to do? Like, of course you're going to react. Of course you could. First instinct is going to be to shoot. But the problem is they shoot to kill when it comes to us. Yeah. He put out his taser like they did that. But that wasn't, you know, again, I can't, I can't blame him for reacting. It's just why did it always shoot kill when it comes to us? Uh, you know, the the I've been thinking about the Columbus, the Makai Bryant thing, the, the Makai Bryant shooting as well. Um, and you know, I, I keep like I said before, like I'm I'm trying to put myself in the head of another community for whom that stuff has gone the wrong way historically for a long time, and how we as a society that whether we like it or not, we're a society of people right now today on April 25th of white people, black people, Asian people, Irish people, like it's all Australians. Like we're all kind of thrown in the mix here and we have to figure it out. Yeah. You know, like, and I, I read this great book um, a couple of weeks ago called bury the chains. That's about the history of the, how the slave trade, the British slave trade in the Caribbean ended. And, it got me thinking of like history in terms of days instead of years or decades or centuries, you know, like I think when we think of slavery as having, you know, in the United States as having ended in 1865 or whenever the emancipation proclamation was like, it feels like that's not, that's a different, that's a different movie, you know, like that's, I had nothing to do with that movie. And it's true. My people, you know, like I never, I don't, that I'm aware of, like I've never held slaves, but The problem with that approach, I have two problems with it. One, it's also true that slavery ended 55,000 days ago. And when we think about it that way, it sort of is like there's decisions that are made every day. And then people have an interaction on the street where they see a black person and they go, Ooh! <laughs> you know, and then go the opposite way. And then when that happens again the next day, 
and then the next day and then the next day. And then gradually it gets less. I mean, it's also true. It's less worse now than it was 55,000 days ago. On the other hand, this is only the 56th, 56,333rd day, you know, and there's going to be the 334th day tomorrow. And so that's true. But I also, I just don't, I don't know where to go. Like, I don't know where, like, other than talking, like, I just feel like my first instinct with all of this is to be like, I just want to talk to a person and understand better. And like, I can read all the books. I can go to all of the diversity initiatives that are held. And it's like, I just, I just keep feeling like it's like, we're, we're sort of glossing over the most obvious thing here. And I don't, I don't even know what that is, but it just doesn't seem to address the issue. Um, I don't know. Like, am I being lazy? Like, what am I, what am I missing here? How am I? You're not, because you know, it's just so much people don't see that. The, I like talking to you because you care. And that's a start. It's just so many people, like, there's white people that just don't care. They see what black people we go through. They know the history. They know a lot of things are going in the community. It's a result of um, colonization and slavery and things like that. They just don't care. They don't care. And they don't care to make everything. They know that there's, no matter what, whether you're Irish, German, if you have white skin, you have a, a privilege. You have an upper hand. And that no doesn't matter what you know, it, and that's a result of everything that went on in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's just what it is. And and no one can really deny that because it's the truth. But the, the thing is, if you care enough to make a change and say, hey, black people deserve a chance too. Because oh, for instance, I just watched this um this story in the news about this family, uh, the Bruce's in 1912, um, uh, they had this property on, in California, a beach property, beach property uh, land in California. And around that time, the property that they purchased was taken from them. Now that property is worth seven, seven million, I think 7.5 million was, now. Was this the eminent domain case in California? Like there was, there was a beach that was taken by the state, right? Yeah. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? And that and that that decision affected generations. It didn't just affect that couple that purchased that beach. It affected those generations after. So that family could have been in a better place. That their their lives, those generations of children could have had better lives, could have turned out differently if that didn't happen. So that one decision trickled down through all those generations. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what happens with and and that's that's not an isolated case. That's mm-hmm. like that's very common. Yeah, redlining in New York. I mean, not just in New York, but everywhere in the country. Like, like yeah. making places where black people can't move. And if you're white and black people moved in, you leave. And it's like it's the opposite of gentrification. Like, it sort of is like you're just like. Yeah. And now we have this problem now with where. And I'm, I was, I'm in a contemporary percussion ensemble mecca. Like that's about as white and nerdy as you can possibly get. <laughs> and. You know, I remember moving into um, like our studio when I moved to New York in 2006, we moved into a a Polish neighborhood um, in Brooklyn and everything was Polish, all of the signs, everything. And over the like five years that we were there, there was like Starbucks and then Starbucks went away and then like blue bottle coffee, like a really nice coffee place opened up. And I'm like, I think they're only here because we're here, (laughs) you know, like, and then 10 years later, now you go there, there's less Polish signs. And it's like, that is a weird 
there's a it's like a there's like a um, like a weed that's growing into a community that's hard to really stop, and then that weed requires different things, and then it pushes out the community that was there, and that was happening that you know that happens now, and it's happening in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, it's happening in in lots of places, but white people also made it impossible for black people to live in specific places. And again, this is when I say that like history in terms of days emancipation practically or in 1834 in Trinidad slaves were freed over the course of four years. They were going to do that. They did a transition, right? Okay. If slaves are freed on January 1st, January 2nd, like how do we think that looks? Right. <laughs> this right. isn't just like, Hey, now I can go buy the clothes I want and I can go party when I want and I can join in all the festivities I want. It's like, no, that next day, the people who owned slaves the day before are really pissed off and want to just oppress everybody else. And the slaves, who have been, you know, generationally for 400 years, they're really pissed off. And a fight ensues for the next generation of people. And we're still yeah. having that fight. It just looks different now. And that, I think, is the hardest part. I think when you say white people don't care, I, I listen to be clear, there are many white people who do not care. But it is almost, it's so hard when you don't grapple with something every day. Like I'm only 41 and I feel like I'm just now getting my head around and I've been in black spaces a lot. It's so hard to diagnose how this stuff plays out in society and be conscious of it when you haven't actually had to experience it. And that's, again, I agree with you. Like it's, there are people who don't care, but I think I actually want to take issue with the premise that you said that, like, I don't think people know actually, like, I think it's out of ignorance. I think a lot of people don't actually know the real history of slavery, not just in the United States, but in the Caribbean. And right. like, you, you want to talk about slavery. The Caribbean was like, they were the, they were the amazon.com of slavery back in that they had, right a grip on the whole thing and it made its way to the United States, but like, you know, but how that man, like that's all these instruments in my room right now come directly from effects of yeah. the slave trade and yeah, colonization, yeah. you know, you're absolutely right. Cause um, the thing is people understand that 50% of the, the transatlantic slave trade went to South America, 45 went to the Caribbean and only 5% came to the, the to North America. Um, you, I mean, the whole that most people don't know that, that they don't care to learn that they don't care to find out, and that's the problem. People don't care to understand. They just want they like things the way they are. They don't care, you know. Not not just white people, black people. There's black people that don't care to learn their own history. So it's um, it's, I think it's more damaging with when, when, when I'm not saying all white people don't care. I'm just saying you know a lot of time you know you see people like that you just see how it is and they just don't care to change it. Yeah. Those, those particular people, they don't want to learn. They don't care to learn. They don't want, they just want, they have their privilege. They have the upper hand and they just, they're happy with that. They don't care about other people's suffering. They don't care about humanity as a whole, mm -hmm. as a whole, as, as people in general, whether white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Oh, hold on. Oogie's ready. Oogie's ready. Look at Oogie. uh -oh. He's digested <laughs> his food. Yeah, he's moving around. Okay, there he is. Oh, wow. So he is a ball python? Yes, he's a ball python. 
And how big is he going to get? Um, He's going to get like three feet. Oh, my God. And how old is Oogie right now? <laughs> Oogie, I don't know. He's a baby. He's like a teenager still. Wait, is it Oogie or Ogie? Oogie. It's Oogie. Oogie. Okay. All right. He, I'll be honest, he's smaller than I thought he was. I, did, I yeah, for some he, reason, pictured you like Britney Spears around your neck sort of python. <laughs> no, no, he's not. Oh, uh, no. He's going to, it's the females that get pretty big. He's not ah, going to get. okay. You good, Dad? All right. Antsy right now. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I, I'm curious, like with snakes, do they have, and I'm asking out of total, like dogs, because of their eyes and the way they act, like you feel like there's a personality there? Like, no. Ogie has how does Ogie sort of like communicate with you? He doesn't. All I know is if, I, <laughs> if they don't really communicate, if I touch him yeah, and he hisses, that means leave me alone. Seems like a pretty good read of that situation. Yeah, that's pretty much it. He's pretty chill outside of that. So he's, he doesn't really do much. He just hangs out. <laughs> oh, he's cute. <laughs> he's his. <laughs> 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 he's, <laughs> he's not a good decent size he's not yeah. good. like three feet he's gonna look good around your neck when you're djing he is i know right oh wow cool. that's crazy <laughs> i'm gonna put him back in his yeah yeah okay okay thank you for showing <laughs> anyway. Yeah, Ogie and food is he, he's very he's very um touchy about food. I, but his, he, I, I learned his mannerism. He don't, mm-hmm. don't have a, he's a snake, but yeah, when he's hungry is when he's cranky. So I I gotta let him digest his food first, and then he's chilling. But he's mild temper. You know, some snakes they they're more aggressive. They're like like the girls, the females. They'll um they're more aggressive. They get bigger and they're more aggressive. That's why I didn't, I didn't get a girl because I I won't be with him. But he just I just put him on my shoulder and he'll just sit there and chill. You know that's awesome. Doesn't really are do there rule, Like, can you take him out in public? Are there rules against snakes and stuff in public? Um, or is that not good for him to be out there? I don't know. I haven't really taken him out in public because I don't know how he would react. Mm. Um, I want to try it one day and just to see. Um, I've been to come up with him like one time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I don't know. He's I, I don't want him to like get agitated and like um, snap at somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know how he'll react to people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. But I want to try it one day. That'd be well. That's awesome. That's it's I've never I don't know. Well, actually, no, you are the second person I, I know that has a snake. There's another a percussionist friend of mine named Peyton McDonald, who if you went on his his Facebook page, you would see his snake. And then he does a lot of weird like mar, uh, experimental marimba playing like where he's he has these sticks with like ping pong balls sewn onto them. And so they rattle around on the keyboard instrument when he plays. And then he's got a snake and it's like, oh, you should hang out with Mecca. Like you two are in the exact opposite ends of the music spectrum, but you both have snakes. And I think that would be, you should start a club. Um, Good. I mean, I like animals. So I, I just, I just like animals. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I, I I'm not, there isn't any animal that I'm afraid of. So, 
snakes don't bother me. Except for maybe the occasional white person. That's probably an okay person. Yeah. <laughs> okay animal to be afraid of sometimes. Well, listen, um, I, I want to get into, I want to talk about some solutions. Just, I mean, pretend for two seconds that you and I can fix things, but um, knowing full well that we're going to log off and go about our day and probably not actually fix things, but at least like two human beings talking about it. One of the things that, you know, I grew up listening to broad generalizations about black people and about other populations too. But, you know, the first time I ever heard the N word was from a relative. Uh, I was really young. I had no idea what it was, you know, or, or why I just knew it was like, Oh wow, that's a, that's a word being said in a way that very few words are said. And I didn't, you know, no, again, have any context, but the sort of like all black people are blah, 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 or all Asians are all Mexicans or blah, blah, blah. Like I grew up around those generalizations and I learned that they're like, it pisses people off when you lump them into categories and then sort of approach them all as if they're the same. Yeah. And I'm in a lot of conversations just in, and they have been happening for, you know, years now on some level, but really intense ones recently. And the sort of, again, like the, like all white people thing comes up a lot and I'm, and I'm finding myself being like, Hey, <laughs> you know, like, like I don't like to be lumped in with like, and I, I want to, the reason I bring this up to you, cause I haven't talked about the, like my feelings on this with anybody else, because I, I think I trust you is like, I think we need to get past all of that in order for anybody to really truly feel like they can engage like a weapon is a weapon and a generalization about somebody or a group of people is a weapon that we all use to some degree. And yeah. usually it's never for good. <laughs> like I can't think of any generalization I've made, whether it be about like all snare drummers, all timpani players, all snake owners, like those sorts of things. Like yeah. I only use it when I'm being lazy. And I say that to myself, but also to the general like ether of like, we can be better there. And I don't think, I think very few black people are going to get on the one with white people and white people are going to get on the one with black people until we can sort of figure out how to not use that tool as our first weapon. Yeah. Um, and I, this, in, as the, my question here is like, when we talk about all cops or we talk about all of anything, I get very much like, I, yeah, like, like I don't know, I don't know how to get into that. What? Yeah, what? and you know, I, so I the, when I say these things, I, here's the thing: in my personal life, my biggest opponent of people that the people that fight me down more than anything is usually black women. Unfortunately, and I hate to say that. Hmm. That's in my personal life. Yeah. When I talk about racism and everything like that, that's general. That's not saying every white person that this and every cop is this and every. I'm just talking about because this this issue with racism is bigger than me yeah. and my issue and what I've wanted. I've had well, I have white people in my life that's been absolutely wonderful to me. Let me tell you what happened to me recently. Um, we I you know I work in I work in um in hospitality at a resort. Uh, I recently was promoted to supervisor. Yeah. I um. Longer and stuff like that. So we just had spring break and Passover at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelming and it was just a lot. And there was this one family, uh, the white family, it was a very like general mother, father, son, daughter, you know. 
They would come by, they would say hi, you know, give me coffee. And it was just very, very kind. They saw the distress and they were very kind. And when they left the resort, um, the daughter, she said, excuse me, miss, here you are. She gave me this little Easter egg. And inside the Easter egg, it was um, jelly beans and it was a note. And it was very touching, the note. It said, I know it's hard right now. Thank you for your, your hospitality. Thank you for your kindness. You're awesome. And it was so, it was touching. You know, and there's this other family that's, that lives at the, they, they own one of the units at the resort and they live there sometimes and they come and they bring, they bring me gifts for Christmas and they bring me, you know, they, they, they're, they're very kind to me. I haven't had, um, most of my inner, my personal interactions with white people are very kind. I have dealt with racism where, you know, there's those white people that just want to bother me because I'm black or just nasty to me because I'm black. So if, it's, I get both ends of it. So when I talk about, I speak out about racism and things like that, I have an understanding that it's not all white people, but this is something that's that is a big problem. It's on a global scale. It's on the, because back in the middle, there's nowhere we can go and get respect. Mm-hmm. The racism thing is bigger than me. It's bigger than my personal interactions. Anything bigger than anything I've, again, in my personal life, the people that try to fight me down and stop my money and things like it's usually black women, unfortunately. And I hate to say that. That usually that's usually what it is. But again, this problem with racism is bigger than me. It's bigger than what I deal with. It's this is we constantly seeing cops kill black people and get away with it. It's it, it happened to my brother. But again, this such the whole situation, it's it's general, it's bigger mm-hmm. as what goes on in my world. Because even I have a lot of my, my, my friends, most of my friends are black women and they're good to me. But then at the same time, there are black women who are very jealous of me and they want to see what I'm doing as a DJ and I'm a radio personality, I'm doing this and I'm doing good, and they want to fight. It's a crab in the barrel mentality. But at the same time, that crab in the barrel mentality is also it stems from slavery. It stems from, it stems from the fact that we've been taught to hate ourselves. So personally, I understand that when it comes to cops, when it comes to it's not all cops are bad, not all white people are bad. Yes, I understand that. But we have to deal with the problem because people are still losing their lives and families are still being broken. It's bigger than me. So that's when I speak out about it, speak very passionately about it. It's about, it's a general, because all human beings should be able to exist on this planet peacefully and comfortably. Not one, you know, better than more, have, have it easier. That's not fair. It's not right. We should all have the same opportunity. We should all, you know, and I'm not, I don't expect white people to hand us anything to do anything for us. I want, I expect us to all be treated equally. That's what I expect. That's what should be happening. But it's not, unfortunately. Well, it's one of the things, I mean, the reason I say, I, I talk about this generalization thing is that like where I'm here, like I think I very rarely hear it from anybody I know that's black. Like I, I, every once in a while it'll come up, but like, I'm mostly hearing it from white people to be quite honest. Like you, you, it's interesting to me that you're like the person on my day to day life. It's black women who are, are giving you the most sort of daily stress in terms of your career. In terms of my day to day life, it's mostly white people who are freaking me out because they're all, and I think it's, I genuinely think it's a, like it, they're trying to figure things out, but they're the approach of just I don't know. I just, I see it turning more people in my private conversations I've had with my white friends who don't understand. I, 
I will say my anecdotal evidence is that it's pushing more people away than it's actually bringing into the conversation. And it's pushing people away for all of the reasons that are being talked about. People are ignorant of, of history. People don't want to be made to feel like they've done something wrong. Even if the, you know, the privilege that we've, you know, I've had as a white man walking through the world, like even if all that stuff is true, like you don't, Anyway, I'm just sort of like I'm I'm a little scared a li- about how many people are in my private life who are just being like fuck all that. <laughs> you know, and and it's like wait a minute, wait a minute. Like I understand if that is happening that quickly, like we need to retool the like we need to retool our sort of slogan around how we are going to get people in the mix and and to figure this out because like I said, like my date where my mind has changed the quickest is in conversations like this. It's not talking about systems necessarily because I don't I I I don't know how to change policing in this country other than to like get in and burn down a cop station and because that feels like the most the most direct thing I can do is be like, "Well, if we just burn it down." Like that's all, but I it might, that's not a rational approach. That's not there there are people in that building. There's a woman just like you, just clocking in to go and be the, be the receptionist or to be a cop or like, yeah. to me, it's these one-on-one and to sort of have the trust to be able to say something that like might get me lit up. <laughs> if I, if I said the thing to you about generalizations that I just posted on Facebook, yeah. I'd be lit up, you yeah. know, and it's because there's no context. I'd far rather have these conversations with you. And I think like my uncle, would learn a lot more from just talking with you than being forced to go to some diversity training, you know? And I think that's how most people are. Again, like I, I, I want to say all this is like, I'm not opposed necessarily to like diversity training and education and things like that, but I don't think it's working Mecca. <laughs> and maybe that's just my own despair after a year on zoom. And, and maybe you can help me understand, maybe feel better about it. But, um, I don't, I, yeah, I don't have a good question here. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you like things like, do you personally believe in defunding the police? No, I believe in retraining the police. Mm. I think that I don't think defunding is the answer. I think they need to learn humility when it comes to black Mm. people. I think that's what it is. Defunding. That's not going to change the way they handle us. I mean, you know, when it's a, a, uh, 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 a tense situation, you know, their their answer is always to shoot first, and ask questions later when it comes to black people, and that, that needs to change. It needs to be some sort of humility, and I think it has nothing to do with defund. I think they need to. I think this is how they're trained. Um, so retrain them, but not defund them. You know, it's like if a pilot crashed an airplane. Like I fly a lot, and if the pilot up there just crashed a plane because he was pissed off. <laughs> you know, like we don't go around and say like, well, let's just get rid of pilots because they're all fucked up. Like, right. you know, listen, and pilots did crash planes for a long time and we made changes. <laughs> like that's things that pilots are better now. And I look at these, like these cops are kind of pilots in our society. Like they, they have all the power. They're driving the plane. I've had tiny interactions with them where it's clear that they don't need to know the law. Like my, my one cop story, Mecca, and this is like, you know, you can just, when we hang up, you can be like, I'm 
that was nothing, you know, but like I had my emissions check stick sticker on my car was I had moved to New York. I looked up the law. I had the right sticker. Cop comes, sees my sticker and is like, starts writing the ticket. And I walk up to him and I was like, what are you doing? Like, these are legal. He's like, started writing the ticket. It's like that answer of the, like, I already started writing the ticket. Like, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, but hi, I'm, I'm a human. I'm, my name's Josh. And I'm, I've, I've looked up the law and he's like, we'll take it to the courts. And if you're innocent, you'll be fine. And just like, I don't know if that person deals with all of their, like when they walk into a bodega, like, do they talk to the person? Like when they're just a citizen and not on duty, like, is that how they talk to everybody? But there was this sort of assumption of like, you don't need to do anything past write this ticket. And if that's the training that's happening for the guy who's in charge of just dealing with emission stickers in New York, imagine what it's like for the cop whose job it is to show up when there's a domestic abuse Mm -hmm. call or when there's some sort of disturbance in the neighborhood, like somebody's drunk. The guy's getting the same training. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this, this qualified immunity, all of it is, it's like, it's all a problem, but what we need is like, these people need to be paid $300,000 a year, just like a surgeon. And if they cut someone's head open and that person bleeds and it's, you know, they need, they need to have insurance for when they mess up so that the taxpayers aren't paying for stuff. Like, this is yeah. what we do for the most important people in our society. I mean, we should do it for teachers too. Like we need to, we need to be retraining every important teachers are pilots in our society too, but we don't, we give them $40,000 a year and are like, good luck. You know, here's a zoom login, you know, that's what it is. I mean, it's I, like, again, I think defunding the police is not the answer. I think they need to be retrained. I, there's so much people. I think defunding is a little extreme. They said is it what? Is it a what? Little extreme. Oh, extreme. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I think they need they, they need to be paid. So they need to be, but they need to do their job correctly. And it needs to be fair. It needs to be humility, especially when they see a black person. They just they understand it. That's still a person with a family, with children, mother and father. Mm-hmm. They need to understand that they don't see that when they see us. And so the defunding is just, it's kind of like the whole gun control thing, right? I a lot of people don't know this. I'm a gun owner. Yeah, I'm licensed. Mm-hmm. Several guns. Okay. I do have a license and everything. I can still carry a permit. So does my mom. You and my mom should hang out. I, think, uh, I, think <laughs> I go to the, the range often. Yeah. Um, so being that I have the license, I know how hard it is already to get a gun and to get a gun license. Making it harder is not going to change what the, the massacres and things like that. It's just going to make it harder for those of us who want to do it right and be law-abiding law citizens and do it correctly. You're going to make it harder for us, not for that criminal that has his mindset on shooting up FedEx, like what just happened. Yeah. Well, this is- that, these shootings and stuff, they don't have licenses. So make some gun reform is not going to change that. It's going to make it harder for me. <laughs> People like me who just want to do it correctly and be, we just want to protect our, our families and protect ourselves and we want to do it within, you know, the the way the law wants us to do it. You know, it's, it's not going to change anything. This is one of the things, again, like with, with broad generalizations, I hate when I'm in com- political conversations with my friends on the left when they're talking about like, oh, the black vote. 
and then or all the the latino vote and it's like okay like the democrats like i don't understand why republicans like they're all for gun control like blah 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 blah, or they're against gun control and and we need this and like don't they realize black community and, and it's like there's a lot of sort of generalizations and then it's like if you get rid of the second amendment on the left and that's your thing do you understand how many votes you will lose in the black like you're under like do you think nobody in the black community owns guns right if there's any community in this country <laughs> that for whom a an amendment to the constitution might actually protect them more than the first amendment from oppression from a government like if that's the argument on the right that we hear all the time <laughs> of like it's protection from our government like when our government goes, okay great agree agreed do you understand that there's a lot of black people for whom the government has actually oppressed them? And now they have a right to this amendment too. And like, right. I just think there's a lot of like, it's just really frustrating because you're, you own a gun because of your rights. And, yeah. and, and, you know, there's a, and, and quite frankly, as, as you interact with cops, was it Flando Castile? Was that the gentleman who Flando was Castillo. like, said he had it's like i have a gun in the car it's licensed was that am i thinking of the right right person yeah it's flano castillo he was the one he said yes sir i do have a gun yes sir i do have a license and the cops still killed he was abiding that's the thing he was cooperating and there's a video and there's a video online of a white guy getting pulled over and there's like two cops and the cops see he has a gun he says the exact same thing refuses to get out of the car and then eventually drives away Mm-hmm. And the cops are just like, don't do this. Don't do this, man. And and he just drives away and they're like, shoot. And they get in the car. It's just like Keystone Cops. Yeah. I'm like, if that was Philando, Ca- Philando Castile didn't even get. He didn't get to. He, and, he, was, he didn't do anything aggressive. He didn't do anything wrong. He was complying. He was complying. He was honest about it. He said, yes, I have a gun. Yes, I have a license. And he still got killed. That, that, that would. I watched the footage. I watched the footage and I'm like, what did he do wrong? This is the thing. Like, I, I, like, if you're going to call balls and strikes, like, George Floyd did nothing wrong except he used a 24 or $20 counterfeit bill that he probably didn't even know was counterfeit. Yeah. That's the thing. He didn't even know it was counterfeit. Right. I mean, I don't, have you ever looked at any of your money right now? Do you, do you look at all your money to see if it's counterfeit? Oh, I don't. Have you ever? Like, I haven't even, I haven't either. So I got to assume George Floyd wasn't like, well, let me hold this up to the light and make sure that there's the little thing, you know, like, yeah. we don't do that, you know. But he was at least, like, in the eyes of the cops or whoever it is that called, like, theoretically, there was a crime committed. Like, Flando Castile was just sitting in his car, got pulled over, and was like, hey, I am completely law-abiding. Let me show you how I've abided the law. Yeah. He didn't make it out. And, like... It's again, like I don't. In, in seri- the thing that's frustrating is that when we think of history in days, it actually makes it scarier to to, to fix to me, mm. because it's like, how do I do this tomorrow, Mecca? Like, <laughs> like these days are ticking by, and I have students at NYU that I have to teach, and I need. I feel like I should be spending, uh, like, yeah. <laughs> It just feels hopeless, and I'm I'm saying the most obvious thing, and it's saying something that the black community has been saying for generations, and I'm you know, but it's true, it feels hopeless. Yeah, yeah, it, and it, it it does sometimes, and it's just you know, it's like I'm I'm a solution driven person. It's like, what do we do? 
to stop it. We can't be like because it's not. It's understood that it won't happen overnight. What can we do to work towards it? And it's just, I just I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, but this is a start. Talking about it is a start because then when we talk about it, there's an understanding, and then you can see that this person that that you but that you burned badly by, and they're human too. These are people too. They, you know, they deserve respect and they deserve chance too. Like I don't, I don't. I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, that white people should do this, they should do that for us. We don't want. I don't want y'all to do anything for us, but let us coexist peacefully. I'm not. I'm not looking for a handout. I I I work for everything I have. Mm-hmm. Everything I have, I work. Everything I've ever earned, I work. And I don't mind work. So I don't look for a handout. What I want is equality, fairness. I want to be able to go into a job interview and get the job because of my qualifications. And if I don't get the job, because the next person is more qualified than me, not because a person skin color mm-hmm. is different. So fairness, equality, we want to, we just want, we just want the same opportunities that you guys have. Then that's, uh, that's it. That's what that's I mean for me. That's what I want. I'm not looking for a handout. I want to stop. I want it to stop being. Here's the thing: when 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 during the slavery times, we were, we, white white people were outnumbered by black people. They have one of slaves, you know. And you ever heard of a book called The Birth Dearth? By um. The dearth. Birth birth dearth. I have, um, but I'll check it out. Yeah, look it up. Um, I, I can't remember the, the author's name. I'm gonna have to look it because I, I, I'll text it to you. Okay. But it's called The Master. And it's basically about how to um, dwindle down the numbers of black people because they because the white white folks at that time realized that they were outnumbered. And it's been strategic and it's been working because I think I wanna I don't want to give you the wrong number. The percentage of black people in this country is like thirteen to seventeen percent. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, so I've I've heard anywhere between fifteen and eighteen percent. I think when when talking about like statistics with cops and part you know parts of the population that sort of thing. Yeah. So now now we're outnumbered. So what they've been doing to dwindle down our numbers has been working because it's they've been dwindling down slowly here and there doing this. There was a, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. There was the sterilization experiments in uh what was that North Carolina? I think. There was um, all kinds of things that they did to us, um, even in healthcare. You know, there's not a fairness. In it. I was one thing for the past year, I've been dealing with a lot of issues that I've been very, very quiet about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I told you, but I didn't tell many people about, but you were one who I told. Um, uh, for a couple of years, I, I struggled with fibroids. Mm-hmm. And I, kept, I went through three different gynecologists and, like, hey, these things are getting worse. Can somebody do something about this? And they're like, oh, no, no, it's fine. No, no, it's fine. I kept getting written off. So each each time of the gynecologist wasn't listening to me, I went and got a different one. Went through three. Um, by the time I got to the third one, the fibroids were so huge and so massive. I looked like I was pregnant. And they they grew so, like, they were so big and, and, and out of control that I ended up having to have a hysterectomy. Um, not a force. I still have like ovaries and stuff, but I don't have, I know I was going to have a uterus because that's how big and how 
many, there was like, a, it was like one huge tumor and then a whole bunch of smaller tumors. And it was so big by the time I got to that third guy conscious, she was like, oh God, we got to hurry and get this thing out. Mm. But it didn't have to get that far if somebody would have just listened to me. And the truth of the matter is, if I was a white woman and I'm like, hey, this is bothering me, it would have been taken care of right away. That's the truth of the matter. They just kept putting me, oh, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, until it got out of control. Now I had to have a hysterectomy. The hysterectomy was in my toe. And um, which I'm fine with because my daughter, she'll be 16 this year. I don't want any more kids. So I'm okay with it. But it, it didn't have to get that far. Right now, I'm dealing with my father. My father has stage four brain cancer. And we just found out about a month ago. And we, the way we found out is because he had a stroke um, around Valentine's Day and was in the hospital. I was on my way to the radio station. My, my mom called me. She's like, I'm at the hospital with your dad. He had a stroke. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm freaking out because my grandmother, she died of a stroke a couple of years, about five years prior. And um, but she, but hers was, she kept having strokes and she was, she put herself on DNR. Mm-hmm. Do not, we don't know, it's do not resuscitate. Mm-hmm. Another stroke, she, you know, she was like, I don't want to be here anymore. So she let herself go. So when my mom told me my dad had a stroke, I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So um, they put him in his rehab center. Um I've, I've been making a lot of trips. One reason why you haven't been able to reach me, like we've supposed to been doing this because I've, I've been spending a lot of time um, going back and forth to Atlanta mm-hmm. to help my mom with my dad and um, be there for my dad and stuff like that. Because uh, he's he as a result of the stroke, he's paralyzed on his right side. Mm-hmm. But his whole right side is gone. He can't do anything with it. He can't chew. He can't swallow properly. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, so, Yeah. And so, but this, the thing, the thing is, as many times he's been to the doctor and stuff like that. Why wasn't this found when it was in stage one, stage two? Why wasn't this found ahead of time? We had to wait for a stroke there because it was weird because I was talking to him, but he called me. He was like, I just want to tell you I love you. I'm like, huh? Like, you just called? That's how you called for him? I'm like, okay. Like, it's weird to me. And I'm like, okay. Then he started slurring his speech. And I'm like, I was like, Pops, are you okay? I'm like, you're all right. And he's like, yeah, I just you know I love you. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, love you too. Talk to you later. Well, I didn't think he Then he had a stroke. Then he's in his rehab center and in, in Noonan, Georgia. And we couldn't, because of COVID, we couldn't go in and see him. So they had us, we had to stand out in the cold, put the phone on my phone on speaker, put my phone on speaker. And we talked to him through the glass, through the window. That's how we were to visit him. So we went in, they went in his head, did a biopsy. Um, he had these stitches going down the side of his head. And they found out it was cancer with stage four cancer. But the way they did it was they were so nonchalant about it. They, it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's cancer. We'll, we'll tell you later what stage it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was just such a, it was like nobody cared. But the, the, the problem is that I feel, and I really believe that because I've seen this happen. If, if he was a white man, they would have gave him. They would have cared. It wouldn't have happened. Like, they would have caught it in stage one. And this is from my personal experience where I honestly believe that if he if he wasn't a black man, it would have been it would have been on it. Well, this is I mean, I keep I hate harping on the, the days thing versus the years thing. But like the more I learn the, Tuske- the Tuskegee experiments or the syphilis experiments on that, was it the, with the Tuskegee Airmen? Um, is that right? Yeah. Um, and then the sterilization. But again, like I. If you just like, let's go back to patient zero, black people's experience with um, medical, the medical community in this country, 
as the only, the reason one of the main reason African Americans are in this country is because of slavery. And the main interaction with the medical community that any slave had was only to make you presentable to the people you're that are trying to buy you. Right. And so slaves coming over had dysentery. I don't know if you've ever had dysentery. I've never have, but it sounds awful. And you're, and there was a doctor on ship whose only job when you got was to rub you down with beeswax and put wadded up pieces of rope in your anus to keep you from showing the signs of dysentery. So again, yeah, that feels like three movies ago. Like there's like, that's that's like watching a horror movie. No, it was 55,000 days ago. Like, and so yes, emancipation happened. Look at us. We're enlightened. We freed the black people. Do you think the medical community was all of a sudden like, boy, we got to fix them up. That was awful. Like, no medical establishments were, were started. Black people have a hard time getting into that. If you went to a pizza shop every day and the pizza owner saw you walk in and regardless of where you were in line, they made your pizza last mm-hmm. and put the least amount. And, it, and basically their only job was to make the pizza presentable to you as a pizza. Right. <laughs> you know, like you just had to squint at it and be like, yep, that's a pizza. Would, <laughs> yeah. would A, would you eat pizza anymore? And B, would you ever go to that establishment? No. You're right. You're and right. that's what that pizza shop is now what a hospital is. Yes, yeah. medicine has gotten better. And I genuinely believe that people who work in those places are doing the Lord's work and want to help. But when a system like that has been in place to... Like dermatology, you know, I'm a white guy. I'm in dermatologist's office all the time. I had, I had melanoma on my back when I was in college, could have died, but I've never seen a black person in that office. I never see a black person wear sunscreen. And I got like all of those things that like I'm hearing from my, my doctors all the time. Like, so what that tells me is a, either black people's skin is completely different from mine or no one has ever really tried to figure out the dermatological issues of the black community with the same frequent, the same speed that they had to figure it out. They tried to figure it out with white people because 55,000 days ago, we didn't care if that, if 400 people getting off a ship had melanoma, whatever, rub some beeswax on them. Like we weren't doing that with white people. And I say that not to make white people feel guilty now, but just to be like, don't be so surprised that this is the way things work. Right. You know, like this is, this doesn't, again, days, (laughs) like we are still recovering from those, from the wads of rope. Yes. You know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's unfortunate right now I'm dealing with, we're dealing with this. They, they, um, my dad right now, he's uh, in radiation therapy. I don't see much of a difference. Mm. Honestly, it's stage four. I don't really know if there's any coming back from stage four cancer. Um, they said the lump got smaller, but his speech is still slurred. He's still paralyzed. He's still, you know, he still can't really swallow. His, all his food has to be blended up. I really don't see much of a difference with this radiation therapy. So it's, it's just like one of those things, like, why wasn't it caught sooner? He's been to the doctor. Mm-hmm. My dad, he was already sick. He was on anticoagulants, heart medication, lung medication, all this. Why wasn't it caught sooner you know it didn't have to be this way didn't have to get this back but it's it's ever i mean again it's like the thing 
how do I say this without like your dad did everything right. He did everything, you know, he's a human being. And again, like sicknesses don't come on one day. They come on over a series of years and days and days and days of, of being like, Oh, that was weird. I slurred that speech, man. 15 days goes by before you slur it again. And then 14 days and then 13 days. And then it's not like every day you're slurring your speech. Right. But the thing that I have been taught in my education about what the medical community, and I'm terrible at it because I hate being honest with doctors about what I smoke or what I don't smoke or what I drink. Like that stuff sucks. (laughs) But communication with the medical field is, takes training. It takes practice. And if you've never been allowed to practice or been taught how to describe what it is that's going on in your body, your dad may not have been equipped. It's not his fault. Like, if you've never been in a boxing match and all of a sudden somebody's like, now go box and we'll figure it out. It's like, no, 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 no. Like yeah. <laughs> your, your dad and not just your dad, generations of people just don't know how to talk. Just like some white people don't know how to talk to black people just in a one-on-one interaction because they're scared. If your dad didn't, if your dad never felt like no one was going to listen to him and he didn't know what to say to get them to listen, of course it went undiagnosed. But yeah. again, that's, thousands of days of that interaction happening and not happening in ways that, you know, genuine human communication, you know? Yeah. And it's, it sucks. Like it's, it shouldn't be this way. It just, it sucks. Like I didn't want to have a hysterectomy. My dad didn't, you know, his cancer didn't have to get this bad. Could it be? This could have been the way people might just gave a damn. Because it's not like he hadn't been to the. He's been to the hospital, to the doctor. He's been getting his medications. Again, he's on anticoagulant, heart medication, lung medication. He has a stent in his heart from a heart attack he had um, a few years back. So it's not like he hasn't been to the doctor. It's not like he hasn't been, you know. It, but the, the thing, and another crazy thing is, black people we tend to not want to go to the doctor because it's always usually some kind of traumatic experience. We don't. We, don't want to go. We have to bust her up <laughs> this drink to go because we don't really want to. Because it's always a usually a bad experience, and and so when you actually do go, and then you don't give a damn. Just, you know what? It's just it's discouraging. Like you just, you just don't want to. Just like, oh. but um, I just think I know that if my dad was a white man, it would have never got this far. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, that's just the truth of the matter. It's just whether people like it or not, it is right now. Now, me, my my mother has to worry about being a widow soon, which is likely me losing my dad. You know, I grew up. My parents have been married for almost forty years. This is the first time I've actually spoken about my dad's brain cancer, like to anybody, because mm-hmm. I haven't posted about it on social media and nothing like oh. that. Like, I lost my dad 10, 12 years ago in 2009, and I understand – he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a – it's like – you know, it's a degenerative nervous disease, nervous disorder. And um, it was the most horrifying thing I think I've ever gone through in my entire life. Like – and I wasn't even the one with ALS, you know? Like, I wasn't the one suffering really on a daily basis, but um, – I'm only saying that just to empathize with you, like losing a parent, like it feels like when you lose a parent, it's like a curtain gets drawn back and then you realize there's nothing on the other side, (laughs) you know, and your parents have just been protecting you from that like deep chasm of like truth, which is like, ain't none of us getting out of here alive. Yeah. 
Right. And that sucks. It's horrible. It's horrible. Cause now you have to be that person. You have to be that for somebody you, for your, for your, for you have a son or a daughter. Remind me a daughter. Now you, you're that, you're that curtain for your daughter. Yeah. And your job is to try to teach her as much as you can, but also protect her from that trauma that you're experiencing now, which is like, yeah. And you know, it's so hard because like when we, when we go to visit my dad, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I try like the first time we went, I, me and my daughter, we got, we were in the car, we, we had a game. I'm like, we're going to go up there. We're going to make them laugh. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, we're going to be strong. And then we walked up to the window. He started crying. I started crying. She started crying. And it was just, that was just all out the door. And my, you, didn't, my, you didn't, your dad, you didn't tell your dad what your plan was. And otherwise he would have been on board. <laughs> no. So it was once he, he saw me, he was like, there's my baby. And he just started crying. Yeah. And I started crying. And my daughter started crying, but my mom, she's there and she's, she's okay. She's strong. Yeah. She's, she's all right. She's like, it's okay. It's okay. And she's not crying. She's, 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 she's okay. And I'm that strength. I was just amazed at how strong my mom has been, especially in that moment when we're just there with everybody's going, she's just like, it's okay. It's okay. So we're balling. I get in the car and then, you know, then the, the next visit, you know, we go, He's crying. I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I get in the car after the visit. And I start crying. My daughter, she puts her arm around. She's like, it's okay, mom. It's okay. And I'm like, I'm trying to be strong for my daughter, but to see, like, you watch your father dying, you know, or fading out. It's like a long goodbye. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through that right now. It's like a long goodbye. Because he's, say he'll be 70 soon. And, and as much as I'm trying to be strong for my daughter, I just I haven't been able to keep it together. You know, it's, it's just now that I'm really able to, to talk about it with somebody. Mm. Like the first person that I've actually really sat here and discussed. But it's she, she, I'm trying to, as a mother, I don't want her to see me crying all the time. And, you know, but she, she's been trying to keep me strong. And I just, because I don't know how to, to deal with when you lose a parent like that, especially in such a slow way. I don't know how to deal with it. I'm dealing with it. My daughter, and I want to be strong for my for my daughter, but she's been trying to be strong for me. She's just, it's okay, mommy. It's okay. It's okay. You know? And, and it's 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 hard to deal with. And just to think that this call could have been avoided if somebody just gave a damn. Yeah. I mean, well, there is no, there is no, like, manual for this. I mean, it's like there's no manual for humanity for life. Like, it's not like we can just go to the, the user manual for how to fix racism or how to fix grief or how to like any of this stuff. Like we're making this up all of as we go. And, and you know, my wife lost her dad in December. Um, similar, every, his was congestive heart failure. So it's like, again, that long, that long death is a hard one. And my, my only, the thing I wish I would have done more with my dad, my dad lost the ability to speak over the time. So like the last six months, he just, he had a little uh, pad of paper with the alphabet and some words written on it that he would point to, to communicate. And, um, I wish I would have recorded some conversations with him more, Mm. you know, like the specific thing with my dad was the loss of his voice. And I, like the, what I remember of his voice is the strained broken one, not the, strong, healthy one, you know, and I wish that I would have just sat down and been like, let's just talk. I don't care about what I want to record it. And just, so I have you with me for the rest of my life. Like, 
And I think take that for whatever it's worth. I mean, again, like there's no manual. So that's where that's for me, my one regret that I, I wish I would have just documented yeah. his existence more just yeah. for nobody else's purpose than for my own. And if other people found interest in it, great. But for me, it's like, I want to hear his voice. I would have, I might be able to process a little better if I could hear him now still, even 12 years later, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, just to say like, don't, don't feel bad about being emotional or, or, or being confused or being upset or being angry. It's all normal. Um, but I think if you can just like when your dad, you said your dad called you just to say you love, he loved you and you were like, cool, thanks, whatever. Like that was weird. Yeah. I think do that until he's telling you, stop calling me, please. <laughs> like make him, make him tell you to be like, you've told me 12 times today. It's okay. Like, because you won't regret it. That's the thing you won't regret. Yeah, that's the thing. We we we've been, you know, every time I'm up there with him, even when I'm down here and I call him, he's always just like, "Thank you." And I'm like, "For what?" He's like, "For being you, because you're amazing," and things like that. And he, you know, um, last time I was up there, we were driving around, and he told me, you know, he's like, he's like his mother actually died of brain cancer two years ago. Mm. Um, so if this is this is the, for him to be going through the same thing is just insane to us. Um, but he's like, you know, I wish my mom was here. He's like. We call my mom Omi. She goes, goes poor Omi. And I'm like, why do you say that? And he's like, because she has to put up with me. And I'm like, it's okay. He's like, you can do it for her, right? It's like, yeah, it's okay. You know? So it's, we, we, we have been having these very, um, what's the word? Emotional conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a couple of instances. But we've been, we've been you know, I, I, I don't know what the word is. Just, I guess, get getting it all out, you know, while we can, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because, you know, even radiation is, is dangerous. Radiation, you can die from the radiation there. So we, we know just the fact that we don't know what the outcome is. We, we know what, what it probably might, <laughs> but we don't really know that that is, you know. Enough because we we still hope for the best. We we're realistic, so I'm glad. And even though I don't like the slow death thing or the slow goodbye, long goodbye thing, I'm at least happy for the chance to express to him or for us express to each other. You know how much we love and appreciate each other and stuff. And you know I'm grateful for that. Yeah. So. Well, it's also. I mean, again, for me, the thing that has been the hardest thing to deal with with grief, uh, at least a lot, my particular experience with my dad was the fear of dying like he did, you know, like, which is a very real thing. And like, that is like, after I'm sad about my dad being gone and I get something like, yeah, you know, it's like my dad was a great man. Like, I don't, I think about him every day, but I'm not like despondent that he's not here every day. What I'm despondent over is the genetic possibility that I'm going to die like my dad did. And that is just it. That fear trumps everything. It trumps, it trumps my fear of a failed career. It trumps my fear of failed relationships, failed marriages, failed anything. It's like, I, that's, and that's a very real thing. And and it's something that like, I don't know very many people who are afraid of dying, dying of ALS, you know? And that's a, (laughs) it's just, it's not rational. Like, 
but it, I think part of this process, and I don't, I'm not saying that you have this particular fear, but that's been my experience. It's just like, Oh my God, like I've got to do anything I can not to go that way, but that's not, I don't really have a choice over that necessarily. You know, that's not, it's not a rational way to see the world, but death is awful and grief is awful. Um, well, Mecca, I'm really sorry. I mean, that it breaks my heart to hear that. And I'm, I, and I'm genuinely grateful for you being vulnerable and sharing all that stuff with me. Like you didn't have to, and, um, it, it means a lot to me. And I, I want to sort of leave some space. I've already stolen an hour and five minutes of your life. Um, I would love to, to leave the floor open at the end for you. I, I, I came to the table with a question slash agenda of things I wanted to talk about, and I have left you zero room to talk about anything you want to talk about. And so if there's anything you would, you want to address here, that's not, um, slavery, racism, or medical related, <laughs> I want to, I want to leave the space here. If there's something that you want to chat about by all means. Oh, I mean, I was looking forward to catching up. <laughs> a lot of you know, even outside of the um, the whole thing with my dad having cancer and stuff like that. Good things about him, like I said, I got promoted to supervisor at my job. Um, I have a, a a residency, a DJ residency. What that means is a DJ is you have a, um, a club that you work at or thing you work at regularly every week. It's like a regular job. Mm-hmm. Um, so where's that? Is that a place? It's at a place called Schwa Hollywood. Um, here in Hollywood, Florida, downtown Hollywood, and um, I'm there Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, and it's more—it's more like um, R&B, hip hop, soul music type of vibe. It's really close. Cool. People, I'm, I'm a, I'm because my my family is from Barbados. People um, think that I can only play soca music, but I'm American. I'm born, I'm born American citizen. I'm born in America, so. I, I'm an open format DJ. Like I love all. Oh, I play African music. I play every, I love music. Like I just love. I don't care what kind of music. It's good. I love music. Like I play instruments. And my guitar over here. My daughter has a you know, my my um, African drums over here. Mm-hmm. I just love music. So people kind of box me as a soca DJ, mm-hmm. and I'm not just that. I'm an open format. I play everything. You should have saw last night. I did a party where I played every play. That um, R&B, dancehall, reggae, soca, all that. And I, everybody was on the floor dancing all night. I played old school, um, old school hip hop that um, Chub Rock and, and um, like Kid and Play, uh, Belle Bib DeVoe, you know, Poison. I did that, like a set with that. They loved it. Everyone was like, but I, I'm so often getting boxed in that mm. but I'm so much more than that so um you got to stop going on shows called soca passion live and then maybe people yeah. won't associate you with soca I'm just kidding yeah. <laughs> so people think I can only play soca but I play everything so as schwa I play I don't I don't even touch soca I play R&B hip-hop so sometimes dance I might try to throw in a Soka song or two or three, mm-hmm. but it's mostly hip hop and, and R and B and you know soul music. So and it's really dope and it's got a nice atmosphere and everything. So it's, it's pretty dope. Um, friend, um, lady I worked with after which she hired me before was Ingrid B. She keeps like poetry night. So um, the Thursday nights is a poetry night, and then Tuesdays is Taco Tuesday. So um, and I got that through Ingrid B. Who hired me for the poetry. Um, for poetry night, so it's it's really dope. Like it's really fun, and I, I I I'm happy to get booked for something that's not soca. Even though I love playing soca, I I love playing music. 
So it's nice to get booked. The people just know and understand that I don't just do so. Well, can I, can I, can I ask in terms of like the trajectory of a, of a, and I'm asking out of ignorance here cause I'm not a DJ. I'm, I know what a, the trajectory of my career has looked like in terms of like, you get a few, you have, you have some random gigs and then you get that first steady one and you're like, I, you know, and then you got to come back to the same place again and keep people coming. Like that's a different responsibility than coming in and sprinkling, sprinkling your fairy dust once and then never coming back. You know, now you've got a steady gig, like in terms of the trajectory of your career as a DJ, does it make you approach things differently? Like, do you have, how, how are you programming the, or curating those nights differently now that you're at the same space now every week? Or are you, I'm just, I, I don't want to assume that you are curating them differently. You know, every space is different. I go off of a vibe. Like I cater to who's there, cater to that crowd. And I try not to repeat the same set twice. Some sets I do repeat because they just, people just love them. Yeah. But I, I more, I try to keep things fresh by interacting with people more. Mm. Like I will call people, Come people out on the dance floor and things like that. Talk to people on the mic and, you know, like make them feel like a connection between me and them. Mm-hmm. Like make like, hey, you you look dope right now, like kind of thing. So, so you're actually calling people like somebody. I think if I went to the dance, if I first of all, I'm not a dancer, and I if you ever saw me in a club, you should just come up. Even if you know me, you should just come up and be like, I think you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I generally am not a. I, I have never functioned well in those worlds, but like if I went in and some and the DJ called me out in a room of like 200 people, like I would, I don't know what that would like. So you're actually interacting with people as they're. Yeah. I inter- like, for instance, there was this girl in blue dress and she was dancing the hearts. I was like, Hey, I like, you got vibes. Yeah. You got a little and she did. And she, and, you know, she got a little story and showed off and she was like, Hey, so like things like that. Or there was, there actually there was one uh, awkward white guy and he really couldn't dance. And I was encouraged. I was like, go ahead. Like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just like encouraged. <laughs> You're doing the Lord's work for race relations, Mecca. I don't un- do not listen. I I'm only half joking. Do not underestimate how much power you have in that moment to to change a white man's life if you encourage him to dance. Like I know that seems like the stupidest. Like <laughs> you know, and, and again, I'm painting with the generalization here, which is what we talked about earlier. But let me just say this against what I said earlier. Most white people, if a black person encourages them to dance. It's a game changer. <laughs> like, it, like I don't know. I think it's going to fix policing in the country, but it's gonna. It helps a lot more than you think. <laughs> oh, he went harder, and I'm like, yeah. He's, he's like, yeah. <laughs> Was there a point where you had to be like, okay, that's enough. Reel it in. <laughs> but it, but it, he he it made him feel good about himself. He was, he enjoyed it. And if people not when you make those interactions with people, they come back to see you and they remember you. Hey, that's that DJ. Like last night. I made like two hundred dollars in tips, and then somebody came and gave me a bracelet. I still have it on. Oh wow, that's nice. She came and put it, put it, put it on my arm, and I was, and I was like, "Oh, thank you, that's dope." But she, I like, because I made that connection with people, it made people feel good. So that's how you keep them coming back. Like you gotta make them feel good, make a yeah, connection with them. Cause it's not just playing music; it's connecting with well, people. It seems like you approach DJing the same way you approached your job at the resort. Like you, 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 you got an Easter egg out of that little girl and you got a bracelet out of that woman on the dance floor. Like that, that approach, I'm just sort of like calling balls and strikes. Like, it seems like you, you treat your DJ job the way you treat every job, which is to like build a connection with somebody and, and go from there. Like, yeah. um, I mean, I'm the type of person 
I'm just a cool person. I just chill. You know what? I'm I'm nice to everybody. And unless you're not nice to me, then I'm not nice to you. I'm just, I, you know, every, everybody deserves to feel good. Everybody deserves to feel special. And so, you know, and, and anything I can do to brighten up somebody's day, I'm glad to do it. So it's not like, it's not a big deal for me. You know, I like to make people feel good. Because when I'm with, I've been through so much hurt and pain and stuff like that. And I, and, and I understand that you never know what somebody's going through in their daily life. Yeah. You, see the person, you don't know what they're going through. So my, my goal is to make people feel good or brighten up their day. If he maybe has a nice strength, like, hey, girl, you go, girl. You look good in that. You know, mm. like, it doesn't cost you anything to be nice or to be decent. So just do it. You know, that's just how I see it. Just be a good person. It's, you know? I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. It doesn't cost you anything to be decent. Like that, yeah. it's actually harder. It's the same thing. Like it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. Like I, I don't necessarily like on the ground, like one, days when I'm having a really bad day, I'm not just like, you know, if you just smile, you'll feel better. like it doesn't always work that way with me, but, but it does, it's harder to be mean. It's harder to be angry. It's costs more energy, more, there's yeah. more capital you're spending when you're just pissed off and mean to people and being it's a platitude a little bit to be like be kind but that's never a bad place to start i mean you don't always have to be kind every relationship i'm sure if you and i 10 years from now if we're still talking and hopefully we get to do have a beer in person but like i'm sure we'd have a fight about something i'm sure you would be like hey bro (laughs) reel that thought in because we need to chat about like that's what happens you yeah. don't actually know me, and I don't actually know you all that well. But that's what—that's what being a human is, and that's why I'm interested in long relationships. I'm not—I'm in, not interested in people whose thoughts are a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah, I'm interested yeah. in the the little pool of water that's this big, that's four miles deep. That's the water I want to get to because um, it's just more interesting. It's more interesting if eventually you and I really disagree on something. But then at the end, agree to keep going because right. that's the thing. Um, again, I'm only 41. I don't know if that's the correct when I'm 61. I may We may be on the phone being like, Mecca, I was wrong. White <laughs> people are the worst. You were right. And I <laughs> – that's not what you were saying. But like, oh, wow, I didn't – okay. You know, I should have gone the other route. But but uh, listen, Mecca, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. These are always – you know, these three podcasts we've done have been some of the most uh, enjoying or rewarding for me, but reward. It's not like I got anything out of it. I just am really grateful to um, not that I, I got a lot out of it, but I'm just really grateful to be able to, to say things that are on my mind without judgment and without fear. Um, and if anybody else watches this and they're really pissed off at a question I asked, that's okay. You weren't in a conversation with me in Mecca. Yeah. And if you want to have those conversations, you want to engage in it, you're welcome to join us. But, yeah. but I appreciate it. That's all I'm trying to say. I, I do. I do enjoy these conversations. I do look forward to them. I wish I, we could have did it sooner. You know, again, with everything that's going on with mm-hmm. me, it just wasn't possible, but I, I, I do. I, I really do enjoy these conversations. I look forward to them. I love it. And, 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 uh, I look forward to getting to know you more and things like that and like to know more about me and you know, things that, you know, it's, 
it, it, it's very, um, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody that genuinely cares and wants to understand. So it's nice. And it's not just that, because you're, you're super cool. Like, you're a cool guy. You're really cool. And I, I hope we can one day, like, have a beer. You know, that, so I, I do, I always, I absolutely love these podcasts and I look forward to them. I watch some of your other ones too, but I can't. But yeah, I, I look forward to doing these with I, I always enjoy this. So thank you again for having me. Well, it seems to me, listen, the pleasure is, is mine and I, I'm grateful for your time. Um, and uh, I watched the, uh, the UFC fights last night and, and they were in Florida, Jacksonville, I think. And they, it was the first UFC event. I don't know if you follow fighting at all, um, but it was the first UFC event with a live audience. Uh, totally, totally packed, no masks. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I see you, Florida. I see you. <laughs> People think, well, here's the thing. People think because Florida doesn't necessarily have a, a, flat, a mask mandate, yeah. they didn't come here and not wear a mask. That's not true. If that, that you, you don't get fined for it anymore, but you have mm. to wear a mask still. Well, in th- the people would constantly come here, oh, I'm in front of I'm like, no, put your mask on. Mm-hmm. You still have a mask. Which I don't, you know, I think at this point kind of doesn't matter because like everybody's freaking had coronavirus at this point. But I mean, but we still have that, that rule there. And establishments can still kick you out for not passport. Well, I I think the UFC, I mean, I will say this, I've I've been following the UFC UFC since for a long time, but since this coronavirus uh, pandemic, they've been very safe. And so, because they they don't want any of their fighters getting sick. And so I got to assume that to get in that arena, you had to at least show that you were back. I'm assuming there's like vaccinations and things that they, I mean, because they had 30,000 people or something crammed in this hall and I didn't see a single person wearing a mask. And I was like, well, listen, it's only been a year since we had that. Like, we're going to get back there. We just, this is how it happens. Somebody's got to be the first organization back with no masks in a, in a big room. But I'm saying that because Florida seems to me the, the one state that I think I might be able to go to first and feel like we could hang out in public and, and have a beer. So next time in Florida, I will look you up and we'll, uh, we'll have to make that happen. But Mecca, in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. Please stay healthy and, um, and be in touch if, if you want to chat again and we'll, we'll set it up. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again. Take care. Be safe. All right, take it easy. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.